Let's open up our Bibles together. Uh, So we are in 2 Samuel chapter 15. If you do not have a Bible, please go pick one up over on the resource table so you can follow along with us as we uh, go through the chapter. That's 2 Samuel chapter 15. If you're a visitor, uh, we are currently going uh, methodically through 2 Samuel. We went through uh, 1 Samuel uh, previously, and now we're in 2 Samuel uh, just kind of seeing uh, the kingship in Israel as it continues to, to press on ultimately to the coming of King Jesus. So we are at 2 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, we'll read the passage as we go. It's a, a pretty long story. Uh, before we get started, I want to open in prayer. So let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our time. Uh, Father, as we open up your scriptures, as we see Uh, your work in the life of your saints. We pray that you would help us to see uh, what you're doing, even in the midst of the mess, that you would help us to identify and understand, um, even as we sang today, that uh, we don't know what you're doing, but we know what you've done. Uh, And help us to to acknowledge that and and see that even at times when it seems like you're very hands-off in the life of David, you're actually uh, sovereignly orchestrating the events that are unfolding before our very eyes. So we, we rejoice in that. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Have you ever had a, a trip? Have you ever been traveling that it was so frightening in the travels that you were worried you would end up at the destination? Now, some of that might be a little bit dramatic, and some of you might honestly say, I wasn't sure. I remember this one particular time uh, during college, we were driving uh, back from home to, to Toledo, me and my best friend, and it was one of those times, it was a bad snowstorm, it was white out, driving on the turnpike, n- white knuckles, I just, I was like, it's been a good life. I'm thinking of that as like an 18 or 19 year old, because uh, I just wasn't confident. Another time, I was uh, flying in a, in a plane with my dad, and it was my first experience of turbulence, not a fun experience. And I remember I was like, I'm looking around I'm like, so these are the people I'm going to die with. And I was like, I don't even know these people. And, and we made it. Uh, another instance, we were on a boat near Mexico and those swelling waves were just, it was more than just seasickness. It was like, I'm going to drown in the Gulf of Mexico. I think each of these examples, it was scary uh, because when you're traveling through dangerous conditions, Times in the journey cause you to start questioning uh, whether or not you are going to arrive at the destination. And I think as we look at David's life, there's just a lot of instances in his travels where the journey seems like it's not going to make it to the destination. Because our journey in this life is often filled with bumpy roads, raging seas, turbulent abounding. God's plan is consistently facing opposition, yet we can and should trust in the Lord. His will will come to fruition. You can count on that. He will get us to the destination. So that's what we're going to see in our chapter today. Uh, We're going to see ultimately that God is a shield about us. That no matter what's going on in your circumstances, no matter what your lot in life is right now, no matter what situations that you are facing, God is there with you, and he is purposeful in what he's doing, and he's going to get you to the destination. In order to break down the passage, we're going to really focus on two main characters. 
One, Absalom, two, David. We're going to see the son's schemes. That's what's going to be the beginning uh, part of our passage. We're going to see Absalom's actions and what he's doing, ultimately trying to become the king. And then our our second uh, thought to consider is going to be the father fleeing. We're going to see David's response to his defiant son. Let's get started as we pick up at verse 1 and we see the son's schemes to, to to kind of set the context of where we are, we got to remember where we ended with Pastor Andy last week. Absalom had been gone from that area for a while. He's now back, but not only is he now back, he has finally seen the king. So they have reconciled-ish. There's no real relationship, no real dynamic. He's allowed to have been in his presence now. But things are not healthy. Things are not all right between the two of them. And we're going to see that very quickly as we pick up at chapter 15. And we start to see Absalom uh, planning and plotting a way to take the throne from dad. All right, so let's begin. Let's read verses 1 to 6. And notice that he has a plan. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. No man to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand, he would take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Notice this plan that is unfolding. First of all, we have to ask the question, where is your worldly king? Here he is. Here is the king that God warned them of. Before they were ever even in the promised land, God said, you're going to want to have a king, and the king you're going to want is going to be of the world. He's going to acquire women. He's going to acquire this. He's going to be self-serving, and, and Absalom is, is the king quintessential of this kind of king. First of all, notice what he does. He gets chariots. See, just like a car collector, right? He's like, you know, he'd be really cool. He's young. We've already seen that he's the best looking guy in the whole world. He is, he is it. He's like, you know, he needs the accessory of a cool ride. So he gets a chariot. He's got horses. He's got 50 men that run before him. No, that's, that's not what's going on. There's a, there's a plan. There's a purpose. There's a strategy behind what he's doing. Because if you know that Israel... Uh, terrain, and specifically Jerusalem, a chariot with horses is not very practical. It's very rocky. It's, it's not, uh, there's not lots of room. Uh, think about it. You'll, you'll notice a lot of times, even like over in Europe, a lot of this, the roads are narrower. And that's why you have a car like a Mini Cooper, like a really small car. It's probably not going to be practical to have a giant, manly, uh, F-150 or whatever kind of truck like that because the roads are, are not as wide. Parking spaces are not as big. It's kind of like this is a very impractical thing that he's doing it. Why is he doing it? Because it is very tied to being a king. Do you remember Joseph? Once Joseph 
gets kind of risen up from the prison and becomes Pharaoh's second man. One of the very first things Pharaoh does is does what? Genesis 41, 43. And he made him ride in his second chariot. It was kingly what he was doing. He was, he was looking the part. We need to understand that with Absalom. He is always looking the part. I mean, he makes a spectacle last week, if you remember, of getting his hair cut. It was this big deal that he would get his hair cut because it was so beautiful. It weighed so much. We've already seen that he's the best looking guy. And now he's riding around. Just imagine you're walking through Jerusalem. There's Absalom with his chariots and 50 men. Somebody important must be coming. But not only is he looking the part, notice that he's playing the part. He's playing the part. The city gate, that would have been the place of business. We've seen that throughout the Old Testament. People would come to share their concerns. Now, ultimately, what they were hoping is they would come into town and then get to come to the king, go to the king, share their concerns. Wherever they were in, in the region, maybe they're having issues with their neighbor, they're having issues with their employer, whatever it is, they would go to the king. The king would hopefully grant them judgment, would, would take care of, think of it like a small claims court even, except rather than going to a judge, the king was the judge. He would take care of it for them. Well, what does he do? He intercepts. Think about this. He intercepts. So every time somebody's coming to talk to the king, he would intercept. He would hear their story. He would sympathize with them. He would show compassion towards them. And he would say, but, Sorry about your luck, Chuck. You see, the king has never actually assigned anybody to take care of this stuff. If he would, man, you could have this fixed, but sorry, nothing to do about it. Man, if I was that guy, if dad would give me this opportunity, man, I would, I would hook you up. And he starts doing that to every single person. And what we see in this is he is, he is our our greatest fear of a politician because he talks out of both sides of his mouth. I mean, think about all the deception going on here. Can you tell two people involved in the same conflict that both of them are right and they're both going to get their way? How does that work in marriage? Think about it. How does that work with kids? How does that work with work? Like at the end of the day, sometimes usually one person's going to win the conflict. One person's going to get their way. There might be a little compromise, but in his story, in his engagement with people, there's no compromise. You are right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Everybody's right. And I'm going to help everybody. And everybody, and then he's good looking on top of it all. And everybody's like, I like this guy. He, he should be the one. And you see, that's what he's doing. He's, it's stealing the heart. It's not like they love him in affection. He has deceived the nation. Well, are you easily deceived? Are your eyes open to threats? I think sometimes we are wooed by a, a, a charismatic figure. We're wooed by somebody that's got the gift of gab. And it doesn't hurt. And I, I know we don't like to acknowledge that it doesn't hurt if they look attractive. And he's got all of this going for him. So where's the world, the king? Here he is. But the other question we got to ask as we're looking at this plan, where's the actual king? Isn't that a little troubling as we read this? 
Like, where, where, where is David? Now, we saw him earlier dealing with the matter, remember? He has Joab go get the woman from Tekoa. She comes and brings a matter that she's got a problem, even though it's a, a made-up problem. And he does have her appear before him. But it seems like something has happened over the course of time with David. He has become distant from the people. He's become a palace dweller. He seems to be, like, as this has been going on for a a length of time, it's going to say about four years, wasn't David scratching his head, wondering, where are all the people? Why don't people come to me anymore asking for judgment? And yet we don't see or hear anything of David. I remember the, the superhero, Superman, at one point in the comics, there was a, a story in which he kind of was, was battling, in, in for all intended purposes, depression. And he kind of just, he, he kind of hid. And he just stopped. And, and all the bad guys are looking around like, where's Superman? And they started getting more brazen and more confident because Superman never came out of the woodwork. And, and he was no longer around. So it's like, okay, we're going to kind of step up and take advantage. And we see that with Absalom. Like, I wonder that first time he kind of intervened, I wonder if he was looking around, like, I wonder if dad's going to show up. But days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months, months turned into years, and he's just continuing to lay out his plan, and dad is nowhere to be seen. And he's failing to do what he was supposed to do. We said it last, two weeks ago, First Samuel 10, 1. You shall reign. This is what a king was supposed to do. Be judge, be ruler, over the people of Israel, and save my people from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Protect, deliver. And yet again, here's David not being the king that God has called him to be. Are you reluctant to lead? Are you where you should be? Because not only does he have a plan, here's the bigger problem. He's making progress. He's making progress. Read verse 7 with me. So at the end of four years, think about that. Parents who have kids in high school— over the course of high school, they've been, they make it all the way through high school. That's the length of time we're talking about. Absalom says to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring, back, bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messages throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence, and they knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. We need to, to kind of zoom in. We need to go a little beyond the surface of what going, is going on here. Because what we need to see is there's, there's a lot more going on here than simply a conflict between a father and a son. There is a spiritual war at work right here. First of all, what we need to notice, Absalom is a type of antichrist. Now, if you remember with David, David's anointed, told he's going to be king, Did that happen instantly, right? Told you're going to be king, boom, King David. No, there was a person that was in the way of that. Who was it? Saul. 
And David was really cautious of doing anything to Saul, if you recall. Had multiple times where he could have killed Saul, finally kingship, but he doesn't. 1 Samuel 24.10, he says, I did not put out my hand against my Lord, the anointed. So you got to think of David. David is not going to touch Saul because it was the anointed. If God wants to make David king, I'm going to wait till God makes me king is what David thought. That's dad. How about son? Nowhere do we read at all about Absalom being told that he was going to be king. There's no message from God. You're the, you're the heir. You're the neck. No, it's not. And yet he is he has no problem doing wrong. I think one of those struggles, especially with younger kids as a parent, how, how frustrated do you get if you tell your child to not do something and literally you can hear the echo still of you saying no, they do it. Anybody? Or just it's a Hillrich thing? <laughs> it's not even just as a parent. Like I, I, I'm coaching fourth grade basketball and during the game yesterday, I, if, if I'm raspy on a Sunday morning, it's because of fourth grade basketball. Because, like, there was a time I told the kid, I, like, literally, when they went out, it's like, hey, I want you to stay with this guy. And he looked at me and he said, yes. And the game starts and he's here. The guy is on the other side of the gym. And I just keep yelling, Josh, Josh, Josh. And he's like, what? And I'm like, why are you not with the guy? He's like, what guy? I'm like, oh, my Oh, my goodness. We see that. I mean, it's just, it's it, like, those are comical situations. But Absalom here, this isn't funny. He knows that his dad is the Lord's anointed, and he knows better. So he thinks. He doesn't care. Four years of plotting. I mean, the one thing you can't say in a positive, and this is like an offbeat compliment, is, man, Absalom is patient. Two years before he kills his brother, Four years before he takes over the throne from his dad or tries. Tons of deceitful promises, trickery. First Samuel 2 8, or first John, excuse me, first John 2 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so many Antichrists have come. So we need to see in this passage, this is more than a conflict between a son and a father. This is more than just simply God judging David for his sin. As he said, the sword will never leave your family. So part of that is a very real fruition of that, fulfillment of that. Because of David's sin, everything's a mess. But we need to also realize very clearly that Satan is here. He is opposing the Lord's work. We need to start understanding that there is no neutrality with God. You're either for him or you're against him. You're accepting and embracing of his will or rejecting of his will. There is no fence, friends, for us to straddle. And I think that's the future reality of, of the church and as Christians. Be ready. This is the kind of opposition that we have faced and we will continue to face. Understand that. Or you look out for the work of the Antichrist. Is there a middle ground? I, I think Christians, we want, we, we, we so desperately, we, we want to see the nations come to know Christ. We, we want uh, people to embrace the gospel, but we also really want it to be done in a way that nobody is offended, nobody dislikes us, nobody's upset at us. And friends, that's a pipe dream. When you're the Lord's anointed, as David is, 
there's going to be somebody that wants to, to, to take over. And it unfortunately was his son. So it's, he's not only an anti-Christ, Absalom is. David, though, we see this in it, he is a type of Christ. There is a sense, because he is the Lord's anointed. Now, he's a very flawed version of Christ, as we've seen. Or you can see a, a line in here where it says that he protected the concubines. And you're like, oh, David. But we, we need to realize that he is a, a type of Christ. Psalm 3, we're going to read a little bit later. It's the psalm that's directly written in response to what happens with Absalom. But in verses 1 to 2, it says, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Doesn't that sound a lot like Jesus? Jesus, his disciples, did they all stand by his side in that moment? No, he was left alone. Did he get mocked at when he was on the cross? Hey, he saved other people. Why doesn't he save himself? Mockery of that. And we see David, he's following in that footsteps. He's in a a bad place. His own son betrays him. Increased opposition. That's the road of Christ. I mean, he is in hostile environment. If you've ever been to a sporting event where you were for the team that was on the road and it's an intense environment, it can be quite intimidating. If you're a player in that environment and you look out and your team is blue, and the opposing team is red, and you are looking out at a sea of red, and you see fans who are mocking you and yelling at you, and unfortunately in sports in America, they're cursing at you and all that stuff. It can be kind of scary, kind of intimidating. And this is like a road game, do you understand, for David? Even though he's at home, which is so ironic, he's got all these people now, they're opposing him. I mean, the same people that were singing the David song about he slewed so many people more then, and then Saul, those same people now are in opposition. Didn't that happen to Jesus? Hosanna in the highest quickly turned to what? Crucify him. Isn't that the reality of a follower of Christ, though, in this world? What did Jesus say? If they hated you or hated me, they're going to hate you. Do you see Jesus? Are you ready to follow in his footsteps. Friends, understand, I mean, this is the, the situation that, that's going on. It, it's a challenge. David is in a very turbulent air, very uh, raging seas, very bumpy road. So we've seen the son's scheme. He's, he's got his plan. He's making progress. Let's look now at the father fleeing. David, in the crosshairs of Absalom's revolt, decides what is best is to take off. First of all, notice that he's thinking. Read verse 13 with me. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who are with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly lest he overtakes us quickly and brings down ruin on us and strikes the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Carathites, and all the Pelathites, and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? 
Go back and stay with the king, for you're a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us since I go? I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittite answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron. And all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Notice, first of all, he's thinking, David is finally being aware of others. Do you see that? David is, is finally looking at somebody that doesn't look back at him in the mirror. I, I can't even think. I think it's a cell phone commercial. But there's this one commercial, this really kind of odd guy. He's on his phone the whole time. And wherever he goes, maybe it's a car commercial. It's, it's a commercial nonetheless. And he like, he opens doors for himself. Somebody will be walking behind him, door shuts. He doesn't pay attention. He crosses a cross path. While people are driving, they hammer the brakes. He looks at them like, what are you doing? Just very self-absorbed, very self-focused. You're like, oh my goodness. Isn't that David so far in our story recently? Didn't think twice about Bathsheba. Didn't think twice about Uriah. Didn't think about all the other people he involved in even working out that sin. He didn't think twice about his raped daughter. He doesn't think twice about his rapist son. He doesn't think twice about the son who revenges his daughter. Like he just, he is constantly focused on one person. And who is that person? David. And now, there's a change in heart of David. He starts worrying about other people. He starts, one, I think he's probably worried about his son dying if they fight. He doesn't want to kill Absalom or get him killed, so that's a reason. He doesn't want other people dying as a result of this, this conflict between father and son. He doesn't want these newer people, as you saw, even with some of the individuals, Ittai the Gittite. He's like, why are you, like, you can go back and live a normal life. Absalom's not going to be an opposition to you. You don't need to come with me. He, he's, he's selfless. He's finally humble. I mean, this is a good thing about David. He's finally being the king that David was called to be. Because that was part of the, Early on, didn't David seem to be selfless? And then all of a sudden, he's not guarding his heart. And he becomes selfish. And, and now he's starting to return. Philippians 2, 3. I think this is David right now. He's not doing anything from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility is counting others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Like I said, he's still very flawed. The fact that there's a line in there that says he left the 10 concubines back, you know what that also implies? He brought a whole bunch of concubines with him on the road. So, I mean, David's still a mess, but he at least is finally thinking of others. Well, are you, let's be, let's be brutally honest with one, one another. Do you look out for the interests of others or yourself? I mean, our culture and our society says you got to watch out for number one. And who's number one? 
Me. But as followers of Christ, is that, should that ever be the case? I mean, dads, are you looking out for dad? Or are you looking out for your wife and children? Friends, are, at work, are you constantly focused on the me? Or are you looking at others? Because not only is he he's finally aware, the other thing that we see with David that's a positive is he is active. He, he is active. Um, this hasn't happened that many times, but there's been a few times driving long distance late at night. I've started to doze off driving. And good thing for rumble strips. Now that wakes you up, doesn't it? That, that's like drinking Mountain Dew and Monster. Like instantly, it goes right into your vein. There's been a couple times where Abby and I were driving, and all of a sudden, like, and like, at least for the next five miles, I'm like, wide up. Well, I think what happens in some sense with everything going on with Absalom, God in his grace, God in his mercy, awakens David from his slumber. He finally starts, he, he starts waking up. A couple things he does. One, little surprising, he's got the ark with him. Now, what we've seen in the past, the ark has been kind of like the uh, lucky rabbit's foot. Like, but then it backfired because they treated it like that. And what does David do? Return the ark. The ark doesn't need to be, strand, be wandering with us. He also starts, if you notice, and let's read verses 24 uh, to 37. Notice what he does. Because he's active. And I think this is important because we have this bad tendencies as Christians. We say this, let go and let God. And it implies this idea that we just sit around, do nothing, and God will work out all the details as if God sometimes and often doesn't sovereignly will us to be part of the details. Listen to what he does. So Abathar came up and behold, Zadok came also with the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they sat down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what, he seems, what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok, the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Iamaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, and see, and I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carries the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remain there. But David went up the accent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspiracies with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city, say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in past times. So now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar. The priests, behold, their two sons are with them there. Hiamaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them, 
you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So not only does he return the ark, he places spies. You know, he's being active. He's being intentional. Who are going to give word of what's going on. He's sad, as we see, there's a lot of weeping, a lot of crying, because you can envision it. It's actually kind of language of like what goes on in Genesis when they exit and leave the garden. He's leaving the promised land area as far as leadership and everything. And then notice what he else does. Not only is he placing spies, he prays. And God instantly answers the prayer. He wants uh, the person who is conspiracing against him uh, to uh, counsel, turn into foolishness, and immediately God brings him Hushai, who's going to end up being the spy to kind of thwart the plans of the, the counselor who is against him. And I think what we need to be reminded, Proverbs nineteen fifteen: slothfulness casts us into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. Friends, and I, and I hope you get this, and we, we constantly, between Andy and I, preaching from God's word, we, ch- we encourage and, and we challenge you to trust in the sovereign hand of God. But that does not mean you and I sit around and try to do nothing. We want the nations to uh, come to know Jesus. We can pray about it, but part of the way that the nations come to know Jesus is what? Is you guys. You bring in the message, you understand? I mean, do farmers, they plant the seed, but then they leave the results in God's hand. And that's it. They're putting forth effort. Farmers don't, in the beginning of the, the time when planting, they don't just sit around and do nothing. You're like, you know what? I hope we have a good harvest. But we didn't plant anything. But, you know, God's just going to intervene and he's going to, now could God miraculously? Of course he could. But a lot of the times, God uses means by which to carry out his will. And we see that with David. He's plotting. He, he is being wise. He's thinking of others. But here's the big point, and last thing, and we're going to wrap up our time with this. Not only is he thinking, he's trusting. Go back to verses 25 to 26. Because I think these are pivotal uh, verses in our chapter today. It says, And the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. First of all, who is, who is David resting in? Yahweh. I think of anything, this looks a lot like younger David. Trusting David, faithful David. I mean, because what we see here is very much a trust fall. He's on the airplane. He looks over. There's the, uh, the parachute. It's kind of weathered. Looks like, does this that work that well? Puts it on, but he's got to jump out of the plane that's going down in flames. Jumps out. He pulls the cord, and he's hoping that it opens up. And if it does, great. If it doesn't, and he's, he's really trusting God. Notice what he says, if I find favor. And I think there's some self-awareness going on here with David. Because he knows it is possible that he doesn't find favor. Does David deserve favor? Everybody nod your head, no. And we've seen it time and again. If anything, he probably deserves more and more of what's happening with him. And yet he trusts. Maybe he assumes that Absalom is going to be the heir of the promise and, and he's kind of being replaced. There's no entitlement. 
He knows he's made grave mistakes. But notice what he says. He trusts in the goodness of God. Let him do to me what seems good to him. David will write elsewhere in the Psalms 23.6, Surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That God is good. Well, when is the last time you ask God to do what is good in his eyes? When is the last time as you're going through a difficult situation, you said, hey God, I want you to do what is good. And if this is what good is, and it's not an answer to my prayer, I'm okay with it. This is, isn't this the language of Jesus? He's in the garden of Gethsemane. Luke twenty two forty two. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Because isn't that the struggle, friends? Because what we really say, let's be candid, when we ask God to do what is good to us in his eyes, what we really mean is God do what is good to us in my eyes right? That's what we want. That's, God, I, I'm looking at this situation, and here is what I think is the best thing that could happen. So you need to do it this way, and then, then we'll, we might even add in, because we're going to be like super spiritual, not my will, but yours be done. But really be my will, but hopefully my will is your will. Isn't that how we think? As in, and in David, in this moment, like, I think there's just a vulnerability here, where he's like, man, I've messed up bad. And maybe, maybe God will extend grace. Maybe God will be merciful and I'm going to get to come back. But if that's not his plan, that's okay. Because he's good. Do you have that attitude? Because not only is that who he's resting in, notice how he's resting. And, and here's what, I want everybody, so we're done in 2 Samuel right now. I want you, if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 3. Psalm 3, where I'm going to read the whole psalm. Psalm 3, it is a psalm of David, and then notice what the subscript says, when he fled from Absalom, his son. So the, the beauty of when we can find a psalm tied to a historical event is we get, to go, we get to kind of see what was going on in David's heart during all of this time. Let's read it. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cry aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves up against me all around Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you strike I my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. I, I think most of us, especially adults, who here has ever had a sleepless night? Raise your hand. Few of you. Who here has ever had a sleepless night because of circumstances in your life at the time? Financial worries, maybe some relationship conflict, health, you fill in the blank. And you just, you, you can't shut it off. You can't turn it off. And what you end up happening during those times is you often look like, what, a zombie. 
We start developing those dark marks under our eyes. You're just, I'm not sleeping good. And then in God's grace and mercy, at some point, maybe good sleep returns. Maybe the circumstances uh, end up being fixed. And, and do you remember that first night where you woke up and it was a good night's sleep? It's like, it's just such a relief. Like, oh man, I finally was able to sleep. Think about this. Think, imagine you're David with me. Your son, your flesh and blood, wants your throne. End of the day, Absalom's fine with David dying. He wants, I mean, get him out of the way. I mean, there's no respect. There's no love. There's no devotion on his part. Others who have been loyal to David in the past are now in opposition to David. If you remember how long, I mean, there was a long period of time he was on the run. And I do wonder when he finally got back, he's like, finally, I'm never going to have to deal with that again. No more cave dwelling, no more out in the wilderness. And here it is again. And yet, isn't that in the psalm, listen to what he says. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I'm not going to be afraid. Friends, that is what it looks like when we're resting in God. God gives us a peace that you and I can sleep. It's supernatural. It's what Jesus said. Not, not, like, not like peace like the world that I give you. Philippians 4, 7. Peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, I have to ask, are we at peace today with God and his providence in our life? Because friends, I think there is a direct relationship to you and I and how much we trust in God and how much peace we have as a result. Because a lot of times we can echo it. We can say, I'm, I'm trusting in God. But you see this is this anxiety, right? If it was water, we're all ducks and everything looks nice. Then our, our little, we're just kind of like, we're freaking out. And sometimes you can see the freaking out even when we're pretending like, we're like, he says he's fine, but I don't think he's fine. And that's David though. Like he looked legitimately in the psalm. He's like, I went to sleep and guess what? God sustained me. I woke up, God sustained me. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not afraid if there's thousands of people up against me. You know why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen? July 15th, 2009. Anybody know what that date is? Do we have any weird people that like no weird dates? July 15th, 2009. It was the miracle on the Hudson. Flight, USA, US Airways flight 1549 took off. On that day, uh, shortly after taking off, it ran into, it was struck by birds. Engines stopped working. Uh, there was loud bangs, flames emerging from the aircraft. Uh, passengers obviously freaking out and panicking in the midst of all of it. Uh, the pilot, specifically the one that we know by name now, Chelsea, Chesley Sollenberger, a.k.a. Solly, was the pilot. They were not able to restart the engine, did not have uh, many options, had no way of turning around and going back to the airport to land. So he had to make a game time decision to land the plane on the Hudson River. As a result, all 155 people on board escaped alive. Could you imagine how scary it would have been on that flight in that moment? I mean, they just took off. 
which as some of you, who, when you fly, like I, I'm hoping it takes off. Those are the two times when I'm in a plane that I'm, I'm hoping that we take off and I hope that we land okay. Those, the middle stuff, I like, I try to distract myself with whatever, but I mean, could you imagine a person's life flashing before them, mortality staring in the mirror? But luckily, man, they were blessed with a very skilled pilot who was able to land that plane and keep them alive. Friends, this life, I think, often feels like we're on flight 1549. It gets scary, right? You get news that you didn't ever anticipate getting. You see people that you thought would be around for the long haul leave you. Circumstances change. Jobs change. Health, finances, relationships. It gets scary. And I think in the midst of that flight, man, we feel like it's going to go down in destruction, in destination. But, but here's the good news. We have a pilot better than Sully, right? We have Yahweh. And he's going to land the plane. Son of David, Absalom, he wants the throne. He wants his life for that matter. But David could say, but you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. And he goes on and says, for salvation belongs to the Lord. Whatever you're going through today, whatever it is, I I hope and I pray that that psalm becomes something that you write on your heart, that he is a shield about me. And what's the good of a shield? If you have a shield, it protects anything from getting to you. And that's what God does in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now and we acknowledge that, Lord, we need you. We are desperate for you. Uh, God, I know even in the midst of our group this morning, we have many people who are going through some, some hard times where it's more than just a little turbulence. No, it's, it's dangerous. It's scary. It's frightening. It's uncertain. And they don't know what's going to happen. God, so we pray for them in this moment that you would help them to rest and to trust in you for you, O oh Lord, are a shield about us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand as we respond?